Hello and welcome to episode 7 of the Rehumanize podcast. today with Krista Corbello. Krista is a new board member of Rehumanize International. Welcome, Krista. Please introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Krista Corbello, and you're Herb Garrity. Oh, yeah, I didn't introduce myself. Herb Garrity, hello. <laughs> I know how to pronounce your name now. Herb Thank you. Garrity. Garrity. Like Garrity? Yeah. <laughs> Not having the word hard in it. Yeah, so thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, so what do you do? How are you involved? How am I involved? I've been involved with Rehumanize since 2016, firstly as just a really avid fan and follower, and just mostly fangirl with my uh, co-director at the time, Alex Sagers, when we worked at Louisiana Right to Life. Uh, we invited uh, Rehumanize to be a part of our Pulse youth programs down in Louisiana um, with our Go Forth rally, which is in Washington, D.C., with our Pulse Leadership Institute, uh, which is in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And uh, we got more and more involved with that. I was a part of the Create Encounter um, Arts Contest, I think, in 2018. Uh, also spoke at a Rehumanized Meetup in D.C. for the March for Life. And uh, now here I am as a board member. Yeah, you've just been slowly getting more and more involved. It's and true. Now, and now you run it. It's <laughs> true. Now I run it. Uh, so it's been fun to just get more involved and, like, fall in love with the organization, organization and the mission and, uh, like, over time. So it's yeah. been a long-lasting relationship. I'm happy to have you on board. <laughs> um, so what type of work do you do in Louisiana? Uh, well, I used to do a lot of youth programs, like I said, pro-life educational efforts, um, still kind of involved in the Acadiana, youth, uh, Acadiana um, educational efforts with their some of their events and things like that. Um, but really right now, it's uh, I'm not with Louisiana Rights Life on staff anymore, but I have been a part of the death penalty repeal advocacy group through the Diocese of Lafayette in my hometown. Um, just working with a lot of those pro-life educators that were super involved when I was at Louisiana Right to Life. So I just kind of uh, got on board while I was still at Louisiana Right to Life, and it was one of the things that I stayed involved in after I left. So Great. Yeah, no, that's that's really important down yeah. south, especially oh, in Louisiana. Oh, it's definitely important in Louisiana where, you know, we have a very hardcore Republican state. Um, but a pro-life Democrat a very, governor. Very pro-life Democrat governor at the time of recording. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, it's it's really interesting. We have a very, very interesting um, political scene and very mostly pro-life in the case of abortion, um, but, a, you know, pretty mixed feelings about the death penalty, I think, down there. Um, mostly that it's a slave state and that's historically where the death penalty is um, advocated for. Mm -hmm. So it's it's been interesting to have uh, a lot of different opinions like even in the Catholic scene where I'm super involved in. So, yeah, turn in a lot of heads yeah. for sure. Um, before we started recording, you told me a horrible fun fact about the death penalty in Louisiana. Do you want to share that? Sure. So, well, the death penalty, especially in slave states, including Louisiana, is like pretty intrinsically racist. Yeah, and, I think that's uh, true everywhere. It, it, it is. And... 
the the fact that I learned semi-recently being a part of the death penalty advocacy group um, was that the last white man who was convicted and, you know, sent to, to for the death penalty in Louisiana was in the 1700s. I don't remember the exact year, but that's, it was a very long time ago. That's wild. And it's not because a white man hasn't killed a black man yeah. since the yeah. 1700s in Louisiana, but yeah. yeah that's, that's a white man getting the death penalty for killing a black man. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's pretty wild and I think pretty indicative of the racism within the justice system, but especially within death penalty courts. Truly. Um, I think, yeah, that... Not, I think that, for me, sort of my understanding of the death penalty, because I've always been vaguely against it, but it's not that much of a hot topic in Pennsylvania. Um, our governor has a moratorium on it right now, so there's people sitting in death row, but there's no executions going on, so it doesn't feel like something very urgent um, in my state right now. So I've never had to really think a lot about it. So it's just been in the past couple of years that I've sort of been doing the research um, to be able to advocate with Rehumanize International. And I think that, you know, we can say the death penalty is racist. Um, and of course, in practice, of course it is. Um, but it, it's not just because black people are disproportionately on death row, um, which is absolutely true. Black people and Hispanic people are, um, specifically black men, are wildly disproportionately um, sentenced to death. But that's not all that matters. What matters is the race of the victim as well. Yeah. Um, and you are much, in every state, much less likely to get harsher sentences, including the death penalty, if your victim is black than if they're white. And especially um, if they're a white woman. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is something that, to me, isn't, you know, intuitive. I, would, I wouldn't have guessed that. And so learning about that, it was just like... That's that's a lot. It's a lot to take in um, when you look at our country's history. Yeah, and another thing about the death penalty in Louisiana, it's like, so it's not the same, of course, here in Pennsylvania, but in Louisiana, it's not just like that, they're for the death penalty, that it's for expansion yeah. of the death penalty. Like, there's politicians fighting for that. Yeah, like, campaigning on it. I mean, I mean hanging like a firing squad I mean this is like barbaric practices that they're advocating for Um, and yeah yeah. I think that's interesting because on a national level we're definitely seeing a pull away from the death penalty yeah especially uh, conservatives concerned about the death penalty is a group that's been doing great work and we've been seeing I think in New Hampshire sort of Republicans in the state senate leading the fight to abolish the death penalty in their state and I think that's really exciting it's like when you see a Republican fighting against the death penalty it's kind of like seeing a pro-life Democrat in office it's like Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, our, everyone should be doing it, but I'm more impressed when you do it. Yeah, our group is working with Catholic Mobilizing at work, and I yeah. know they're doing a lot of nationwide stuff, and they've been so helpful, such a great resource just yeah. for us specifically and, like, helping us, you know, form our message to our, you know, audience and things like that. And it's just, like, for me too, like, even, like, there are Catholic priests in my diocese who are for the death penalty. Wow. And which makes it, to me, like, obviously a political issue and not, like... But, I mean, there's Catholics who don't know what the Catholic Church teaches about the death penalty. So it's, you know, being a Catholic in Louisiana who is against abortion and gets the death penalty, that's kind of radical yeah. in Louisiana. So... Yeah, it's an important place for you to be then. It's fun, yeah. yeah. It's definitely fun <laughs> and having conversations with people um, of different opinions of my same faith. It's it's 
it like I said, just fun. It's fun to at least talk about it and get people's minds on it. And uh, we'll see what happens in the future, like politically, at least. Um, at the time of the recording, I really don't think... I know what much of going moving forward for that. But yeah, yeah, yeah we'll it, see. it definitely piqued my interest because of the death penalty's relationship to abortion. And, like, I mean, I get, not the relationship, but the parallelism between the death penalty and abortion was so strong for me. It made me uh, kind of, what did I say? I think I said I got advocate, advocate um, butterflies. Uh, whenever I started learning about the death penalty and reading Sister Helen Prejean's book and watching uh, Dead Man Walking. And uh, she actually came to Louisiana where she was during the time of Dead Man Walking, actually. So it was it was great to like get to meet her and talk to her and see um, some parallelism. Yeah. Can you expand on that a little bit more? What do you mean by the, the parallels between abortion and the death penalty? Because I think for a lot of pro-life people that I know, they can get really offended when you say something like that. Um, I, I see on Twitter sometimes, uh, you know, when I, I'll say something like the death penalty is not pro-life because it's an act of violence and pro-life is about ending violence against human beings, um, that they'll say, well, an innocent baby is nothing like a convicted murderer. Um, it's, it's horrible and it's unjust of you to even compare them. Um, but I think I agree with you that I, that I also see some parallels, um, especially in sort of the, the systemic things that lead to both abortion and the death penalty. Yeah, definitely. So I think it's, it's very hard for people to kind of wear a, a lens of, of compassion maybe when it comes to the death penalty and people who have committed crimes and things like that uh, to me if 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 pro-life is about saying that people have intrinsic value mm -hmm. then that means that nothing that they ever do can take away that value and I've heard people say in the Catholic world people say that oh well these people are acting like animals so they lose their human value because of that and I think that's a very I, I definitely understand people who whose family members were murdered, and it, it's definitely a hard situation that I have never been in. And I, I know people, including politicians in my state, who are for the death penalty because something very tragic happened in their family. But I don't think that uh, ending a human life, even a guilty one, can really make up for the fact that another human life was taken out of an act of violence. Like, violence begets violence. Mm -hmm. so therefore, violence doesn't beget peace. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, um, that makes So I sense. think it's, it's very interesting that people advocate for more violence. Um, and even, like, even the people in the jury, like, they experience some serious, like, trauma after, like, convictions and things like that. There, there's a, this resource that I read, I think from Catholic Mobilizing Network, where they were um, talking about people who, who served on a jury, and there was a convic uh, conviction, and, you know, it was carried out, and then they found out later that this guy was innocent, and, like, how guilty... It's almost like a survivor's guilt um, that they felt because, you know, the guy was innocent. And that that's one thing about the death penalty that is baffling to me is that you can never be 100% sure that somebody was guilty. So how, how can we advocate for something that we're never 100% sure on? Yeah. And it, it which is kind of like that pro-life, you know, in the, in the 
against abortion since, like the pro-life argument, like, oh, if there's a someone in the bush, if there's something wrestling behind the bush, do you shoot? Mm-hmm. And um, so to me, it, it like made everything a very full circle for me and holi- more ho- holistic, more comprehensive for me to understand what, what it really means to be pro-life. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that point that you made about um, the people on the cherries is really interesting. I don't know. Have you ever met Rachel McNair? No. She is excellent. I'm a big fan of her. Shout out to Rachel McNair. Everyone go buy her books. Um, she is. She works with Consistent Life, the Consistent Life Network, um, and she's just like a, she's a PhD. She is a research powerhouse, um, and she writes a lot about pits, which is perpetration-induced traumatic stress. Um, and she, too, sees parallels among these issues. Um, so she's written about how, uh, you know, people involved in the death penalty process have this form of PTSD yeah. that comes from being a perpetrator of violence and how that affects, um, you know, our veterans who have been forced by the state to kill, um, as well as former abortion providers, and how, um, you know, they're, of course, not all the same. It's not the same to kill in war as it is to um, kill a child in the womb, but it is all an act of violence, and it it doesn't just affect the victim. Um, Related, at our conference that's coming up in October, uh, we're having a panel uh, about sort of, I I guess, like leaving violence and the effect that that has on you. Um, So that idea of the parallels, I think, is is really interesting. um, And Dr. Rachel McNair talks about it in some of her academic work. Um, But I think it's really important because obviously when we talk about these issues, I think the victims really should come first. A lot of the time um, we should we should be talking about um, the people who are affected firstly by violence. But we can't leave out those people who, um, you know, the person who drives their sister to the abortion clinic, the person who um, is just doing their job in the prison when it's an execution day. Uh, For a lot of people, they can sort of just bottle it up or, you know, support the policy and practice or support, you know, the act of violence. Uh, But then it can affect them even if they don't realize it directly. Um, So I think that's, that's a really important thing to think about when we think about rehumanizing um, to to rehumanize perpetrators as well as um, sort of victims Victims. and survivors um, which is of course important in the context of the death penalty because we're talking about perpetrators of violence typically Certainly. And actually, one of the things that whenever I started diving into the death penalty, I've been Auschwitz, you know, I've been to Poland Mm -hmm. and going there uh, is a very interesting feeling because and this is a small thing, but like flowers grow there and you kind of think where a place where such violence and darkness happens, like there is no such thing as beauty there. Um, And this is like something we were talking about earlier today, where some of us uh, on the team went um, do some sidewalk advocacy outside of the Planned Parenthood and how there's a tree right there next to the Planned Parenthood that doesn't grow no matter how much they replant it, which is what you discovered, yeah. and, uh, which can be an inspiration for a poem. Yeah, I've been saying for months that someone needs to write a poem about this one tree because if you look, it's it's in Pittsburgh, 933 Liberty Avenue. Um Go there in sidewalk council. Uh, if you look down the block, there's, you know, it's a city street, so there's there's trees lining the, the block. Um, and you can see, like, 20 of them down the row, blooming, flowers on them, beautiful. 
and this one right outside of Planned Parenthood that is just dead always and they've replanted it several times um and it's just so interesting to me and I feel like it's begging to have someone write a poem about it um so do that. Come to Pittsburgh, see the tree, and write a poem, please. So, like, yeah, this. <laughs> what you're saying? No, what the what like it's all kind of inter. It's all clicking right now for me. But that the flowers are growing at Auschwitz. You know that. Um, you were kind of talking about all these different like players in the game almost, and it makes makes me think of when I visited Auschwitz. I thought of not only those all those victims, of course, but it's like all those people that were involved in it, like you were saying, people yeah. involved um, just because it was their duty or because they didn't want, you know, uh, maybe they were th- their family was threatened, and, and like you you have no idea why some of the people were choosing what they were doing, um, and it, the same goes for like both abortion and mm-hmm. to me the death penalty it, yeah. it was like i hate to compare those uh, all these issues to each other i hate comparing issues yeah, yeah, to each yeah. other but to me it's not about like you know the death and the but it's like the violence and like what i'm seeing more and more as i'm in the consistent life ethic um you see how violence really is trying to get as many people as possible it's not just this okay this is an act of violence and from one person to another person it's like People don't realize, like, how interconnected we are just kind of as a society in general and, like, how violence can affect them if they're a part of this process. It's, like, all these moving parts. Mm -hmm. um, I think we're all much more interconnected than we realize. And that's kind of, like, exactly why I'm doing what I'm doing, like, being a part of Rehumanize and um, hopefully doing some more advocacy with you know, people who are survivors of aborted siblings. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's something that we haven't talked about yet. Um, because I think that that might have perked some ears. Uh, because I don't know many people who talk about um, being the sibling of someone aborted. Um, and I know that that is an experience that you have. Uh, would you be willing to share some of that today? Sure. Yeah, I mean... Starting at Louisiana Right to Life, um, I knew that I wanted to share my own story and my mom's story, which was that my mom, as an immigrant woman who was pressured to abort, still chose life for me. And it was a hard decision, but she still chose life. And, you know, her boyfriend, my biological father, stepped out of the picture. Um, her parents, my grandparents, disowned her. And it was it was hard, you know, for my mom and for her to sacrifice that for me. And, like, I will always, that is the foundation of my pro-life advocacy, um, is to honor her. And as I learned more and more information about that, I, I always thought that my pro-life advocacy was about me and my mom, was about mom, mom choosing life for me, but really about me. Like, I survived. I And it's more then I realized more that it's like oh my mom went through a lot of stuff just just choosing life was a hard thing and like the struggles that she went through and then it became more even about her her parents my grandparents and then I met my biological father um, at 22 and started developing a relationship with him and you know getting to know him and like just having the guts to ask him one day over pancakes like are you glad my mom didn't abort me and he began to cry and tell me his story that you know after my mom there was this other woman another girlfriend she got pregnant and that woman was in the same situation as my mom but she chose abortion and they they regretted it and they had a lot of pain from that and uh you know I realized 
you know, it wasn't just about me. It was even about my biological father that I was just starting to know and his pain of abortion. And I remember him saying like over and over during that conversation over pancakes, um, like I can't imagine how, how much women hurt because, but men hurt too. And he was saying that as a post-abortive father. And once I was starting to, I mean, of course, my first response was, oh, let me tell you all these resources that are yeah, available to yeah, you. Yeah, Project Be- Rachel, we because, know them all. Because, changes you. because I worked at Louisiana Right to Life, I'm mm-hmm. used to telling people about resources available to them. But as I started to reflect on it and just, like, really take it in, I realized, wow, I have an aborted sibling. Yeah. And that made me like cry like nobody's business and it it sent me into this weird abortion related depression and this was all while you were working in the anti-abortion movement all while I'm working at Louisiana Rights Life and speaking and sharing this story publicly and and it was a very powerful time like it was very cathartic to speak on it um but I remember at that time I was crying every other presentation you know and I you know chalked it up to just being like a an emotional person and a crier Mm -hmm. but really it was that like imagine someone else whose family member died from an act of violence you wouldn't expect them to give 70 talks a year on yeah you know especially months after learning about it yes and it was definitely a journey uh and i don't regret a thing but it was it was hard it was very heavy it was very difficult and um i've seen how other people whenever i was speaking how they're affected by their parents' abortions. And it's not even necessarily, like, my experience, which was, wow, I feel really guilty that I survived. Like, why did I survive? I was in the same situation. My mom was in the same situation as uh, my sibling's, you know, mom. But my mom chose life, and that mom didn't. And for a while, it was that survivor's guilt. But then it became, like, um, even about like how families are are torn apart because of abortion, right? Like my mom and my biological father didn't work out because abortion wasn't on the on the table and and you could see how people uh resent their parents for not telling them um when they find out they have an abortion, maybe they find out from their grandmother. There are some parents who choose to have another baby because they feel so guilty about the abortion, but then they can't make an emotional connection to their second child and so they like basically emotionally abort that child and uh, don't have a relationship with them anymore. Um, You see people who, like, I I remember one girl told me um, that when she was a child, she cried all the time. She never knew why. She would look in the mirror, turn on the shower so no one could hear her, and she would cry, cry, cry. A five-year-old child. And later in life, in her 20s, when she found out that her mom had an abortion, it clicked for her. And she told herself, that's why I cried as a child. I was born in a womb of death. And you see, like, all these, like, strange psychological connections. Yeah. Um, which I believe is all comes from fetal development, from the time of, you know, yeah. growing as a fetus. Um, I think mom's state of life um, truly affects the baby's state of life. Yeah. I think that also goes back to what you were talking about before, about just the interconnectedness of all people. Um, I think that we, I think, you know, sort of a pro-life talking point is that one third of our generation is missing. Um, and I think that when, when we say that or when I see a sign that says something like that, uh, they're missing because they've um, been aborted, I don't really think of them as people who were lost. It's just, you know, there's, there's one third less 
people in our lives. Um, but I think that especially in the context of, you know, the family, there's someone missing. It's a real person who should be there and who was there. You know, it's not just a matter of, um, you know, my mom had one less kid. She had a child and now that child doesn't exist because they were killed. Um, and I think that that, I think that that leaves sort of scars for people who might not even know about an abortion um, or a miscarriage because those are also sort of hush-hush a lot and we don't like to talk about um, infant loss um, and prenatal loss in any circumstance. Um, but, but there's someone missing. There's someone who was there and now they're not. Um, and I just think that I think that I've never heard someone really advocate in the way that I'm hearing you talk about your um, your family members who have been lost to abortion. And I think it's really important uh, to hear those stories because no one else is really telling them, partially because of the secrecy. So, I, yeah, definitely the secrecy. Uh, it's, you know, our family secret. We don't talk about this. And, you know, certainly in my own family, there have been family members who confront my mom and say that I'm, you know, talking, speaking ill of my grandmother. And I, and it's not that way for me. And I, I hope nobody ever misconstrues my intention. My intention is never to berate women who've had abortions or correct or condemn. And it's, it's really a place of compassion where I, I truly feel sad that they had to go through that because whatever their circumstance was like for my mom it was that she was a single she was what be, became a single mom for my biological father it's that they feel they had no other choice and it, it's much easier I think to forgive someone uh, of an act of violence when you kind of understand where they're coming from yeah and that I think that's a huge part of it for especially sibling ministry um which is what I think yeah is going to be in the cards for me in my next steps in life. Yeah. Something I had a question about about this is, do you sort of um, feel yourself or know other people um, in a similar circumstance that end up feeling some sort of, like, resentment or anger towards your parents or perhaps grandparents um, for choosing abortion? I have seen some people... Yeah, who who end up in the situation where they resent. Specifically, I'm thinking of someone with their biological father. Um, they have a lot of anger towards their biological father. Um, that friend was conceived in rape, mm-hmm. and uh, she knows of at least two other siblings that were conceived the same way she was. And um, so I think that's a different situation, though, yeah. because it's, I mean, that's an act of violence that Itself. Cre- created a life and yeah. um, then begot another act of violence which was abortion um so i think that's a way more complex issue but um even people who just find out that it's a secret when they find out um not from their parents though from another family member oftentimes i see um the resentment not so much in the fact that their parent had an abortion but that they didn't tell them about it it's kind of like Maybe if your mom had a miscarriage and you never knew about it because mm-hmm. maybe mom thought you were too young to know. And then later in life you find out and you realize, like, what your parents went through. And it's just like, why, why wasn't I a part of this? Mm-hmm. It, it's just like that secrecy. It, it seems to, like, or even adoption, like, to find out 
like imagine if you found out from a family member not your parents that you were adopted later in life like that's it's difficult and I, I do think there's an appropriate way to talk about it an age appropriate way to talk about it maybe I don't necessarily know what that looks like but um, I do think uh, there's a way to tell your children. And I, I do see, too, that it's not just about resentment, about having the abortion or keeping it a secret, um, but sometimes it's even that, uh, you know, it affects their relationship. Like, it's a, it's like a connection thing. Like, sometimes you hear about post-abortive women who, at their next ultrasound, when they are going to choose life, whether they're in a better life circumstance or whatever but they choose life and they can't even be happy about seeing the heartbeat on the screen there because they realize oh well this baby's in this ultrasound right now is 12 weeks I had an abortion at 20 weeks in the 70s and I and they told me it was just a clump of cells like now I know and so it's it's difficult again for the connection so then um you see kind of the resentment in their whole life really it's not about it's not even abortion related like explicitly abortion related, but kind of implicitly, mm-hmm. yeah, it is. Um, so that's all very interesting to yeah. to like hash out and experience with people. Yeah, yeah. I I also wonder what it is like for people who are less um, sort of knee deep in the pro life movement to learn about something like that, um, because I think for us. You know, I you can't be in the anti-abortion movement without being friends with multiple people who have had abortions themselves um, or, you know, just talking to people who have been in that situation. And I think that um, especially in kind of the, the consistent life part of the movement, but also in the mainstream movement, um, you see a lot of compassion for women in those circumstances. And I think that, you know, it's sort of been taught to me by working along pe- alongside with people who have had abortions to now end abortion um, that it's not as simple as you know a woman hating children and killing yeah. babies um, but I think that for a lot of people when they first sort of learn what abortion is that's how they see it they just see it as um, you know women killing babies because they want to out of convenience um, so I, I really, I almost empathize with someone who would find out that someone in their family had an abortion, but doesn't, you know, know people who have had abortions otherwise, um, and have, hasn't done the work to sort of rehumanize the perpetrators in that case, which um, are the doctors, but also in some ways the, the women who choose abortion. And I think that that is... It's, it's sort of interesting to hear someone who is, you know, already pro-life, already super involved in the movement, already speaking against abortion, to then learn that you're affected by it in ways that you didn't even know. Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, the, st- the statistics are so high. You know, all of us have been affected yeah. and impacted by abortion, whether or not we realize it. And... For me, like, my discovery of it was because I was speaking out about it. Like, I mean, other family members confided in me about their aborted siblings. Like, Krista, how do I how do I talk about this? How do I feel about this? And a lot of people feel kind of guilty for feeling sad about it. And I think that's yeah. silly. I think people should, like, it's, again, not a condemnation of our parents, um, but rather just 
and honesty with our own feelings. Like, I'm allowed to feel sad about a sibling who died from abortion. Like, I would be allowed to feel sad about a sibling who died from cancer or anything else that seems unjust or like someone's life was taken too soon. Um, but people, I know people who feel uh, like they, they ought to shove down their feelings um, for the sake of, oh, I don't want to judge my parents. Um, and again, I just think, you know, my outreach, my ministry is going to be a, coming from a place of of just honest, being honest with our feelings. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so. I think that's great. So what, what are your next steps? So next steps at the time of recording are to, you know, reach out to people with, with the same story as mine. Like, again, it was only through speaking that people even heard about stories like mine and they would tell me after my talks like you know I have an aborted sibling too and I've always felt guilty or I found out from my grandma and um and it's always been hard for me I don't even want to invite my mom to my wedding and I mean so having people talk about it or openly being able to talk about it myself and then maybe building a community of people knowing that so that they know that they're not alone um, because I know for me, I had one friend whose mom had an abortion or several abortions. And uh, his friendship to me during that time meant so much more to me than I think he realizes. Um, because it, it made me feel not alone. It made me feel like this kind of unique and weird life experience um, is not only it's not only me who experienced it. And uh, just being able to give people a place to kind of share those feelings. Um, And for me, it's that I have an aborted sibling, but it's also that I was considered for abortion. Mm -hmm. And when people have near-death experiences in other ways, you know, um, like in my hometown in Lafayette, there was a a shooting at a movie theater, and uh, which was only four years ago. But I know one of my friends was in the theater when it happened and they have a community and they used to meet a lot and they used to talk about that shared life experience. And I think that's one way to rehumanize one another in our life experiences. And, um, you know, compassion is very important to me and very important to me because it means to suffer with. And uh, if we're being compassionate to one another, then we're suffering with one another and knowing, you know, again, we're not alone. We're sharing the load. Um, And someone knows what it's like to feel that way. Um, This very complicated reality and complex mix of emotions. You're not the only one that's going through that. And that should give you hope and and courage, as it did for me with my friendship um, with others that I know who have my life experience. So just building up that community if anybody ever needs to talk about that or reach out um to talk to me about that i'm happy to happy to help and be there something um that just sort of came to mind when you were talking about uh the being a sibling of an aborted child is sort of back to the the interconnection interconnectedness and uh parallelism between um you know acts of violence and the different uh movements that we are a part of um i kept thinking of bobby schindler yeah who um if if listeners don't know is the brother of terry shivo who um was killed via euthanasia um 
particularly starvation and dehydration, um, and how, you know, that's sort of a similar situation of, you know, you, you know, weren't in a position to, you know, advocate for your sibling at that point in your life. Obviously, you were a very small child, right? Um, and he was, you know, literally prevented by the state, um, by police officers at the hospital yeah. door that she was staying in from helping. Um, and I think I've heard him talk a bit about, you know, it could have been me. It could have been any of us to get um, a brain injury and then sort of have our rights stripped away. Um, and I just think it's, I think there's some interesting parallels there between the abortion issue um, and euthanasia, even though uh, euthanasia and assisted suicide in the United States, at least, is much less commonplace. Um, but partially because it's less commonplace, I think that there's less of a community to be yeah. able to talk about those issues. Um, so Bobby is doing great work. Look him up at the um, Terry Schiavo Hope Life and, Life and Hope, ne yeah, network. Hope and Life or Life and Hope Network, um, but they do great work for medically needy individuals. Um, a lot of children who, um, you know, are kind of hanging on for life, and they are fighting for their rights to things like food and water. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, that just kept popping up in my head of um, just another parallel, I think, between. Yeah these issues wow to be compared to bobby schindler Thank you. <laughs> you're the you're gonna be the next bobby schindler <laughs> i'm gonna be the next bobby schindler oh man i mean tell tell you what talk about sibling advocacy that he does yeah for sure yeah. that's beautiful and he's a, actually a really good friend um to louisiana rights life has spoken at pli for the last several years Great. um and he's yeah what an inspiration he is to me personally yeah. so yeah. Thank i you. think he he spoke at one of the first ever rehumanized conferences of course did. before i was even on board so i never heard him speak at one of our conferences wow. um but i've heard him speak a couple other places i think including in louisiana yeah. when i was down with you at an event um but you will be speaking this year at the Rehumanized Conference, I will. right? A little breakout session. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure when this episode will air, but I'm pretty sure it'll be before the conference, maybe in October. Um, but yeah, you'll be speaking about some of the stuff that we talked about today. I will. So if you're in the New Orleans, Louisiana area, yeah. you're welcome to come to the Rehumanized Conference. Yeah. Do you want to say the website? Oh yeah, sure. That's uh, it's our typical website, rehumanizeintl.org/slash/conference. Um, there are a bunch of tickets available still. Um, yeah, I'm really excited for the conference. Yeah, I'm it's speaking. Gonna be, I'm glad you name-dropped some people that are speaking at the conference. Cause yeah. That, wasn't it yesterday at the time of recording that the website, the speaker website? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was all updated. The website is in constant flux. We're constantly <laughs> <laughs> changing what is on the website. Um, oh, non-profit life. Truly. Um, but, yeah, no, we are... Right now, at time of recording, sort of booking some of the speakers, and I'm very excited. We're going to be talking about a lot of these issues. I think Rachel McNair, who I mentioned, Dr. Rachel McNair, um, is actually speaking as well, along with um, some abortion survivors, Josiah wow. Presley. Um, wow. So that I'm really excited for the conference. I think that every year I'm sort of blown away with the the different people that we get to come um in the past kirk bloodsworth who yes. uh, 
was Jeff last Rowe. year, right? That was last year, yeah. He also, I think he might have also spoken at one of the first ones. Um, so he's been a friend of the organization. He's great. Um, he is a former death row inmate who has been exonerated and now works with Witness to Innocence, which is an anti-death penalty organization. I'm not sure if he's speaking this year, but we have reached out to him and said, you are one of your friends. Come, come speak. Um, so whoever we get uh, from probably Witness to Innocence will be there. Diane Coleman from Not Dead Yet, which is a great anti-euthanasia and assisted suicide disability rights group. Yeah, no, I am beyond excited for the conference. I feel like I can't talk about anything without bringing up and dropping names <laughs> of people who will be speaking. Um, John Whitehead will be there. Yeah. He's a great anti-war activist. It's going to be really good. Yeah. <laughs> and Krista. Krista, yes. among those wonderful names. <laughs> I am just along for the ride, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else that you wanted to plug or bring up? No, I'm just really grateful to be a part of Rehumanize, including this podcast. Um, I've been on a podcast kick lately, so this is <laughs> super fun for me to be on the other side of the podcast world. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you, Herb. I really appreciate it. Yeah, well, thanks for coming on. Thanks for tuning in to the Rehumanize podcast. To learn more, check out our website at rehumanizeintl.org or follow us on social media at rehumanizeintl.